Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. Dietitian Connection acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening to this. In my case, I'm recording from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. So the National Disability Insurance Scheme, with the number of NDIS participants in Australia increasing, it's really important for healthcare professionals, including dietitians, to understand the ins and outs of being an NDIS provider. So today, to help you out with this, we have Lena Brake to explore the basics of setting up as an NDIS provider, the importance of working in a multidisciplinary team, and the learnings that she would have found or the the information that she would have found valuable to have early on. Um, Now, anyone who's listened to past Dietitian Connection podcasts or seen some of our webinars will be very familiar with Lena Brake. She's the founding lead dietitian at Tube Dietitian which is a community-based home mental nutrition service providing support for people going home from hospital with feeding tubes. She's combining her hands-on experience with research by now undertaking a PhD in home tube feeding, investigating the experiences and challenges of adults living with a feeding tube. Aside from her passion in this area, Lena has a thirst and, let me say, a real talent for connecting with dietitian colleagues from all walks of the profession. So please don't be afraid to connect with Lena on LinkedIn is probably the easiest way. So welcome to the DC podcast today, Lena. Really nice to have you back. Thanks so much, Jen. I love being here. Thanks. <laughs> so we have had the pleasure and most recently we spoke to you on a podcast about blenderized tube feeding. But yeah. What's been happening in your world since then? Oh, gosh. Probably the highlight was going to France on my own for Espen. Yes. <laughs> no no baby, no toddlers, no nothing. Um, so I attended the European Society of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, um, which was my second time in my career. It was really fun, and it was just awesome to see what the Europeans are up to. And so presented there? Been- yeah, yes, I had three posters um, right. all in the space of um, cost, micronutrients and blender tube feeding. Um, and I also had a presentation with them um, uh, just talking about plant-based enteral feeding products. So, yeah, it was wild. Congratulations. That, that's my highlight. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Yeah, a trip to Lyon is always a highlight, yeah. I think. <laughs> um, yeah. So we're going to sort of focus a little bit today on the NDIS Uh, space. So for anyone who might be listening outside of Australia, it's the National Disability Insurance Scheme in Australia. What's led you to be so passionate about working in this space? Since stepping out into the community almost four years ago now and focusing on my private practice, um, more than 70% of my patients have a disability. And 
I just realized that it, it feels, unfortunately, sometimes it's the norm to just CCMX, continue current management after hospital. <laughs> and, and really that concept of choice and control, whilst we love to believe it's always been in a part of our dietetic practice, I really think the NDIS has, with all its flaws, I think it's done a pretty good job at sticking out this concept of choice and control, more choice and control for people with disabilities. And, and those two words are all over their website and it's often what NDIS is about. So I, I like that. I like that. And I like that message. And I think it's really important in the nutrition space. Um, I also like NDIS because I think it's, give it, it's giving community and private practice dietitians a sort of a governance Yes. You know, something to attach themselves to, which we would have otherwise not had. And, and, and that can potentially give you more credibility, not potentially, definitely gives you more credibility. So just in terms of NDIS and how it affects, and we may get onto this a bit later, but um, yeah. how it affect, impacts on someone with a tube going home from hospital, like you say that it's been, you know, we I guess we hear about NDIS in terms of independence and goals yeah. and that sort of thing but but how does it actually impact on people going home from hospital with a tube feed that are, that are NDIS participants? Well before NDIS as as we all know for tube fed clients um, they were getting support funding support from public hospital programs and that was pretty much your only option and tube feeding can cost up to a mean of 8k a year right, mm. based on a recent audit we did at, at Tube Dietitian. And the range was between like 2K to 19K. So it's expensive. Yes. Um, and so the NDIS has, being a federal funding, has given that more, that, that security and that more, that, look, you don't have to focus on, you don't have to worry about money anymore. We, we've got that covered. You focus on your well-being. So I, I think it's definitely been a game changer. As much as there's flaws, but I definitely think it's been a game changer for those with Tube Feeds. So it is covered because often this comes up uh, and it used to be before NDIS that, well, you had to pay for food anyway. So, you know, you have to continue to pay for food. It's just that your version is a commercial tube feed. Um, are the costs now covered by NDIS? Absolutely. From that, that's, that's happened from October 2019, um, if my memory serves me right, was when the NDIS released a statement to say, we will consider tube feeding formula and equipment as pretty much as linked to the disability, linked to uh, the okay. medical picture. Um, but as a dietitian, we still, when we do write advocacy letters, like the other day, I think about a, a few weeks ago, I did get a, a bounce back to say, no, we're not covering the tube feeds until you prove that the nutrition, the tube feeds actually linked to the disability. So you've still got to do, you've still got to right. really. <laughs> as obvious that as that might sound. Like. No. Yeah, you have to have a heading in your letter to say nutrition um, intervention linked to disability. Right. <laughs> You've got to put a paragraph there so you yeah. can cover that. Um, but no, it's been a game changer for people with, with disabilities on feeding tubes in the community. It's also given them that that confidence that, hey, you don't want to keep going back to the hospital yes. for, for follow-up appointments. You can have appointments at home. You don't have to wait three hours in a waiting period mm. in, in, a, in a waiting room in a hospital where everyone's coughing at you you can wait at home um yeah so that's also another game to do that you're not sick you know yes, you, you're exactly. not sick you don't have to go to the hospital change the mind frame you can now yeah. get that care at home 
So with dietitians who are in private practice, most likely they are going to be seeing more NDIS participants. Um, Mm. Do you think that they should be going down this path of becoming NDIS providers? Look, I, I... Yes, 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 and a big resounding yes. Why? Because I'll give you two really, I'll try and convince anyone listening. <laughs> I'm a huge advocate for this, especially if you're a new grad or an emerging dietitian that's setting up a practice from scratch, or if you're a seasoned clinician that's looking to um, strengthen the foundations of your practice. Why? The NDIS gives you teaches you good business habits from from right from the beginning. So I I when I started to dietitian four years ago, I didn't start it without NDIS. I looked on NDIS to see what the NDIS considers a good provider. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so they want people with risk management policies, policies, privacy policies. That's what they had listed. People who do regular hand hygiene and infection control training. Yeah. Right. So I was like, oh, okay, so that's what the NDIS considers is a, a, a high quality service provider. So that's the baseline I'm going to start my practice with. So for me, it it gave me that structure. And I think that's important when you're setting up a business from scratch to have those foundations, you know, in place, um, as opposed to just starting a private practice out of the whim. You've got an ABN number and a website. Yes. That's exactly what I'd be thinking. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much what I thought too. I was like, ABN number and a website, that's all I need. But no, we're we're delivering super niche clinical, you know, not necessarily high acuity, but, you know, it's it's people's lives. And if the NDIS considers a good provider as XYZ, that's what I'm going to base the business off. So, So that's one reason. The other reason is street credibility. It really... It, you become better equipped to provide that higher level care and that per, personalized guidance. You, you're better off building those networks. You're on the NDIS website as a provider. People go, okay, that this practice has a code of conduct that they answer to. You know, this practice is getting audited every three years for the, the quality of their work. So if I had a mom, brother, sister, child with a disability, I would be looking for a provider who's stamped. Yeah, yeah. So you've mentioned that there are some of those criteria that the NDIS list um, as being important. Are there other sort of basics that dietitians should know about um, of setting up as an NDIS provider? Okay. If anyone listening doesn't have a paper and pen, get one. So these are some, because the, I've just gone through my renewal audit, right? So right. I did it first when I started setting up in March 2020 and then it lasts for three years so in a register and then now I've literally it's mine is expired and I've just gone through the whole process again and this is what the NDIS asked of me you've got your basics your ABN number is active you've got professional indemnity insurance um, to back you up those working in a hospital have that automatically mm. your APD status so a signed up to DA and an accredited APD, not eligible and actual APD. No, right. um, hand hygiene and infection control certification. And that was so frustrating for me to get now because I'm not in a hospital organisation where I can quickly access those virtual um, sessions. So I had to find an external provider that does that sort of training and then just just do one of those. Um, 
risk management policy, as I said. And you're probably thinking, well, Lena, what what would you what did you what do you put in your risk management policy as a dietitian visiting people at home doing enteral formula prescriptions? Mm. That's stuff like, what if my I'm at I'm at someone's home and they collapse? Yeah. What do I? What am I going to? What your responsibility? Yeah. Yeah. What, what am I basic life support trained? If I'm not, well, then what's my next step? If I am, how how often am I getting that checked? Another part of my risk management policy is COVID nineteen screening. <laughs> yeah. So, so see see what I mean? Like this stuff, I did. I honestly did not think about it till I set up based on the NDIS and and. And when I wrote my policy, these policies, I did get them, they were obviously audited by NDIS and I got feedback, but I also got them checked over by a lawyer. Um, another policy is privacy policy. So things like when patients, when when hospital dietitians refer to me through my website and they put patient names in my website, someone might come up, you know, the NDIS says to me, well, how do we know your website's secure and these yeah. names aren't going anywhere else or you're not using them for other purposes? That that's the sort of stuff that would be put in a private privacy policy. So, um, sorry, go on. Keep going with the, the essentials. One, sorry, yeah. I, I'll, <laughs> the other one is a complaints policy, and you're probably, and I, you know, you're probably thinking, well, what sort of pe- things can people complain about? Heaps. I mean, if a carer thinks I didn't put a didn't didn't do a good job with my written enteral feed regimen, and they want to put a complaint, and they're really upset because another for the family member put the wrong amount of feed in. Well, am I, is that just an email where mm. I reply, reply back saying, sorry? Yeah. No, the NDIS tells you, you need an anonymous feedback strategy that they go to Dietitians Australia or whatever, and they put that complaint, then you respond. So, you know, you'd think this is all over the top. And I, and, you know, thankfully I haven't needed to use any of these policies, but having them there should give, does give my clients that safety net. Um, the NDIS, if you're going to be a registered provider, also asks you to do a, an orientation module, which takes about 90 minutes, and you have to do it um, every three years-ish. And that orientation module goes through things like how to how to communicate with people with disabilities, how to, you know, stuff that you'd think comes to second nature, but it's actually good to get a refresher. Mm, so that's orientation for you to yes. as an NDIS provider to work in that yeah. space. Yeah. And I've got to give, I've got to submit a certificate that I did that 90 minute module of yours and, and here's evidence. And so have all my contractors. Right. So the dietitians that work with me had to also prove the hand hygiene stuff. They had to give a hundred points of ID, police checks, NDIS worker modules. Hmm. I guess even for you, just listening to all of this, you know, you would trust the practice more when it's gone through all of that. Yes. Yeah. With your loved one that Absolutely. has a disability. Yeah. So I really want, and look, the most recent one, I'll be fully transparent, costed me $1,870. So that was my next cheap. question. Is that, yeah. Does this all cost you money? So that yeah. was just your renewal that cost you that much? Yeah, that was my renewal. Because I had to, you have to find an auditor. You go on the NDIS website, you find an NDIS approved auditor. You then book a day with the auditor put all the files you need in a in a Google Drive or a Dropbox, and then they tell you, I'm going to audit you on this day, stay near your phone. Um, and they look through all your documents, and then they give you a report to say, this is not enough, this is not enough, this is enough, and then you pay them. So it's not cheap, um, but I think the return of credibility, 
diet raising the profile of dietitians in the NDIS space. Mm. <laughs> I was looking in prep for this talk. I was looking last night um, on the list of NDIS approved clinician rep services. There were twenty two dietitians on there. I counted 22 dietitians. And we can Physios. pretty much guarantee there's a lot more than 22 dietitians working with NDIS participants yeah. in Australia. Yeah. Um, it's 22 dietitian practices that were recorded. But, yeah, there's definitely more. Yeah. And physios, they were like, it was an endless list. Mm. So so becoming a registered provider, I think we need to spend that money and, and get that scrutiny and that and be scrutinised and write policies because it'll only advance our profession. Yeah, and as you say, it also advances the profile of nutrition generally yes. in the care factors that are important yeah. for NDIS participants. So you mentioned physios, um, mm. and you're obviously a dietetic practice. You're not a multidisciplinary yeah. practice. But yeah. do you work with other members of a multidisciplinary team and, and who and how? Yeah. So. That was something I was so afraid of leaving hospital because I, I'm not good being lonely. Um, so I was like, oh, damn it. <laughs> you know, it's very lonely to, um, to do private practice work. But I, I quickly realized that you are in full control of that. So I'm in full control. Of that. So what I mean is I started asking NDIS coordinators, hey, who else is involved in my client's care team? And can and some coordinators are really good and have like bi-monthly care team meetings and some don't. And I realized that those that do organize bi-monthly care team meetings, you see the physio, you see the speech, you see the client's parents, you see their carers at the disability home. And it's just so much more fluid and so much more. You know, you get an email and you you can respond in five minutes because you saw the physio three days ago. It's so much more brilliant. So I've started making sure that each of my patients nagging on coordinators, can we have a care team meeting if we don't usually? Can we in include this in actual? And when you quote, you know, a coordinator tells you how many dietetic hours does this client need? I normally say a tuberhead person needs between 15 to 20 dietetic hours in a year. And I normally split it up and break it down and say five of those are care team meetings, attendance. And if you don't have any, can you please organize them? Because it really helps me do my job when I know the speechy on the other line, when I know the physio, the OT, the parents, some, some disability clients, you go to their homes and you just meet the carers and, and the client themselves. But it actually really helps to meet the sister or the brother or the parents mm. who live in their own home. And those care team meetings allow for that flexibility. So yes, NDIS can be lonely, but I think you, the listener, and me are in full control of changing that. And, and are, the, are the care coordinators kind of open to that if they haven't organised care meetings? Um, yeah. Does it take it a really, bit of persuasion? or like... Look, it really, it really depends on how much funding as well the client yes. has okay. um, because obviously a care team meeting, it can go for an hour, but there's about eight people in that hour. Yeah. So that's eight times eight hours, whatever. Yeah you know, a hundred bucks or whatever it is. So it's, it's a lot. Um, but when they come and do a plan review, if, you know, if they tell me we don't have enough funding to facilitate or host this, I say, well, at the next plan review, I'm going to put it in my letter to say, this is necessary. Um, you know, things as simple as last time the physio was like, look, 
this particular client is most alert, um, you know, between the hours of 11 to 1. And so I'm going to change my physio sessions to be within that space. So can we make sure there's no other intervention happening? Yeah. And and I need to hear that. Mm. I need to hear that. And so does the speechy so that I can make sure I change the bolus feed or the pump feed or whatever is happening and make sure they're outside of those hours. Yeah. Um, simple things like that, that we take for granted in a hospital. So yes, it's so important and it's in your control to help facilitate for your client. Yeah. And I think that is a good example because they are things that you don't necessarily think about. And as much as we like to think that we're doing patient or client-centered care, yeah. those sorts of things are going to make such a difference. If if yes. they're stuck between, oh, I'm meant to be doing physio, I don't want to be attached to a pump or whatever it is, yeah. um, that does not help their quality of life on a day-to-day basis at all. Yeah. So, and, you know, we all get nauseous if we're eating a banana while running. Hmm. <laughs> Sorry. So, yeah. So, yeah. So are there, from your work, and I guess now that you've got a couple of years' experience here, are there other allied health disciplines or workers in those things that you think have really um, embedded themselves in this area much better than dietitians have? Because I guess <laughs> it's quite new for dietitians still. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, look, I'm a huge, I always fangirl on the physios. I think the physios have done such a brilliant job in the outpatient setting. I mean, I I know undeniably their intervention is a lot more, you get immediate reward yes. as opposed to our intervention. So that makes a difference. But I think if anyone out there has got a private practice that you feel is not thriving to its full potential in the NDIS space, find a physio in a private practice nearby and ask them to coach you um often getting coached by a a non-dietitian in the business space and physios are quite business-minded most of them have post-grad certs in business and management because their clinics are really effective and efficient and especially in the ndis space they play a very big role and they're often them and the ot's are quite prominent in the ndis space so again, it doesn't help that our intervention is an immediate reward, but I think we've got a lot to learn with the way physios market themselves, the way their websites look, the way they run, the way they automate all their services, um, automate invoicing, automate admin. I initially, for the first two years of Tube Dietitian, I was doing all the invoicing. And then uh, two years in, I was like, this is ridiculous. Why am I writing up invoices when there's 50 million programs that can mm. automatically do this? So now I've bought QuickBooks as the program that I use um, for auditing, for invoicing my clients, but there's also Xero and others. But um, yeah, learn from, yeah, my experience has been the physios have always impressed me in the NDIS space and I think they do private practice really well. So mm, that's probably and I guess I guess for NDIS participants, you just mentioned invoicing then, but yeah. it's really important to track that. So it's not like just a one-off consult where you've got someone come in and, you know, you invoice them. When you've got a limited budget and that covers a year, yeah. then I guess it's really important to follow that. But the couple of other things you sort of yeah. said that made me think about the, the physios, um, one is are they good at recognising the importance of nutrition for clients that they're seeing and referring on to you? Like do physios sort of recognize that or do you think that's another part of working in the multidisciplinary team is promoting ourselves yes absolutely so i think the speeches the community private practice speeches are obviously really good at linking us in mm. i haven't 
I think the physios and the OTs become really good if we show face yes. in care team meetings or in emails and go, like whenever I get a new client, I've now started telling the coordinator, can you introduce me to the rest of the care team, either on a video meeting or an email? Mm. Like just shoot an email to everyone and say, we have a new, we have a dietitian on the team. This is who they are. I think, yeah, we need more presence in the, in this community private practice space. Um, my experience is I don't think the physios and the OTs see us enough to think of us as much as, you know, we can offer. Yeah. Um, so yes, we definitely need to be stepping up our game and, and getting registered as getting registered as a registered provider helps raise that profile and tell them I'm here. I'm here. I'm a registered provider. I've got an NDIS stamp. Yeah. And have something really valuable to offer the client. Yes. And have um, something valuable that follows a code of conduct that's been audited, that's backed up by policies that will support your clients. Absolutely. But I think also, you, like you mentioned, that they have an immediate impact. And yes, because you feel like <laughs> uh, my mobility, I need the physio to enhance yeah. my mobility or whatever. But on the other, the flip side of that, nutrition is such an emotional thing, isn't it? And if you have a relative or you have relatives of people who are sick or have a disability, if that person is not eating, that is their number one concern, isn't it? Like that is just terrible and anxiety producing so we have an opportunity to i don't want to capitalize on people's misery yeah. but but yeah. tap into that it's so yeah. important to people because if they see their loved one not eating or you know not getting the nutrition that really causes concern for adults absolutely. or children absolutely the, the got one of the key statements um in a lot of the ndis paper is improved um opt what is it well-being no it's escaped my mind, but something around well-being. What's mm. what's about well-being and quality of life? And yeah, you're absolutely right. Nutrition, malnutrition. Um, we have absolute evidence to show that malnutrition worsens quality of life. Um, hopefully, we'll start getting more literature out out there to show nutrition intervention improves quality of life. Mm. That's the next step of research. But we know malnutrition plays a very big role in overall well-being. Yeah, exactly. So mm. when you sort of were a, a new a newbie in the NDIS arena, what were your sort of biggest fears or concerns about getting into the NDIS journey with your participants <sighs> and clients? I think, yeah, look, I think because my biggest fear when I was start, when I was thinking of starting up a private practice in the community, my biggest fear was actually how are people going to trust me when I don't have this big organization? Mm. I can, like how? Because I wouldn't trust someone without a big organization. So that was my biggest fear when I started. And that's why I was drawn to the NDIS and, and whatever it costed to get registered because that's what helped me overcome that fear of, yeah, that, yeah how do I give myself more credibility as a sole trader without a big organization and NDIS gave me that answer. Um, I'd be really, I, so I don't know private practice before NDIS registration. Yeah. I'd be so, if anybody listening had, had their private practice opened pre NDIS and then became a provider or is thinking about becoming a provider, I'd be so interested to hear from you about what your fear is. 
to, to move your practice into a stamp NDI? Is it money, you know, the amount it costs? Is it the time it takes to, to do those policies that I was talking about? Because they're actually really easy to do. There's plenty of free templates on Google. And then you just get a, a cousin to, who's, a, who's got a law degree to read over it. <laughs> my, my, luckily, my sister's a lawyer. So yeah. that, was, that was helpful. Um, family um, ties. Sure yeah. Someone in the family yeah. tree. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, what is the fear? Is it money? Money can, you know, money comes and goes. Credibility comes first. Raising our profile comes first. Is it developing those policies and the time it takes? You can do it over a weekend and get get a look, you know, get a lawyer. There's a brilliant law group called Health Legal. These guys are a boutique law firm that I've worked with. Um, they're a bit pricey, but they help me answer lots of little kind of legal questions related to private practice. And they're a health firm that is boutique and specific to clinicians. So they're called Health Legal. And if you've got a bit of few dollars up your sleeve and you want some legal advice in this sort of policy writing, um, in if you want to open a program through your private practice, I, I approached them because I was actually I won't go into it. It's too long of a story, but <laughs> but they're a great group to, to to liaise with. So that can overcome your fear of the legalities. Yeah. Um, other fears I've heard. What else? Money, legal stuff, policy writing. Auditing, I guess, yeah, you've got every three years, as I said, my recent audit, I didn't have the high the hygiene and infection certificates done. Um, I didn't know they were meant mm. to be done. So I actually got back, the auditor came back, it means that I can't pass you because you don't have evidence that you and your team have done infection control. And so I had to like quickly scramble and find how the hell we're going to solve this problem. But um but I definitely think it's still beneficial. Um, so, so yeah, auditing is scary, but it also advances you. <laughs> um, what other fears can someone have? Well, when you mentioned, because some of the, thing, the things might be, I don't know what's involved. Like, you know, yeah. you've just covered it and it sounds like a yeah. lot. Um, <laughs> but, but you, it's manageable, I promise. <laughs> but you went to, so NDIS obviously have a website set up yeah. for people that are interested that has yes. all that information, all the requirements there. It's so clear. Honestly, the NDIS website is very, very clear. And, and I'll send you the exact link of what to do to become a pro service provider, a registered service provider. Okay, yeah. and um, remembering that if you are a registered service provider, you can see all three types of NDIS clients, plan managed, self-managed and agency managed. If you're not a provider, um, you can't see the agency managed group. So remember that being a registered provider um, will also draw a few more client potential towards you as well. So that cost you're spending in the auditing and the policy writing or whatever. Um, will come back to you. Also, the cost with policy writing or seeking legal advice, that's only once. You've only got to do, you know what I mean? Yeah, and then then the following auditing years, you just tweak the policy a little bit here and there. Um, but, yeah, it, it kind of comes back to you. And we hear a lot about the evolution of the NDIS, like there are constantly mm -hmm. some changes and tweaks. And and when you're a registered provider, do you get email notifications of changes <laughs> as they happen or do you have to keep going back to the website to find out 
if there's something changing? Jane, that's actually a brilliant question. And and yes, you are right. They do send email updates and they're great. So if there's, for example, a change in the cost of a dietitian, the, the dietitian service mm. that they consider the, the amount, they do send and say pricing updates now active from the 1st of July, yeah. 2023. So yes, I do get lots of emails as a registered provider and it's very helpful. They send you things like federal, like change in New South Wales or change in blah, blah, blah. Yes, you get lots of emails. Um, yeah. Again, it's like being a part of a big organisation. You know what I mean? If you're a part of a big hospital health service or whatever, you are going to keep getting little tiny news updates. It's the same with NDIS, yes. So, Lena, too, there's obviously there is a lot involved, but you've got to start somewhere, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> the websites for NDIS is probably a good place to start. But um, if you just wanted to give a final tip or um, pearl of wisdom to anyone listening who's yeah. about to enter this space, what would it be? Um, become a registered provider because, <laughs> because it will strengthen our, your credibility as an individual but also as a profession within the NDIS. And number two, seek a mentor. Okay, don't do private practice on your own. But there's so many of us out there um, linking with one of us and ask, what have you done? Why did you decide to go down the path you have? What did you find beneficial? So if you're an emerging dietitian, a new grad dietitian, even a seasoned clinician, seek mentorship from a private practice dietitian or a non-dietitian. Learn business. Learn those basic business skills. Good Mm. advice. Well, (laughs) for anyone listening, just um, the information that we've sort of discussed today is based on Lena's experience. And if you are planning on um, pursuing NDIS provider registration, we do encourage you to do your own research um, because we said things change all the time. We will add some links um, in the show notes so that you have a direct direct link to the relevant information. Um, And I guess I can just say good luck to everyone who decides to go down this path. Um, (laughs) Hopefully we'll see dietitians taking over NDIS soon. Yes, yes. Let's get more than 22 on that list. I hope I haven't (laughs) miscounted, but yeah. It's still not (laughs) many. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Lena. Thank you so much for your time today. Love talking to you. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learned, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.